90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, well, I'm doing pretty well because it's Groundhog's Day. Hey, every <laughs> meteorologist's favorite holiday. Exactly. I figured since we were both a reformed meteorologist, um, I hope that you're celebrating Groundhog's Day like I am with a nice fire rock ale from <laughs> Kona Brewing. As, as a uh, rehabilitated meteorologist, I can now <laughs> enjoy the holiday because Puxatani is not all that far from where I'm sitting. Oh, that's right. And I heard he didn't see his shadow. So thanks for that, I guess. Yeah, and that is a rare occurrence. Normally, uh, yeah. Phil does see his shadow, but that means we have uh, an early spring this year. We'll see about that, El Nino. You know, I I saw somebody saying, only in America do we trust a rodent to predict the weather and deny the science behind climate change. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, I always like to tell people that we really used to have a Groundhog's Day party. People don't believe me when I say that. No, we did. I, I went to it several times. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really big deal for us nerds. So, yeah. Um, I guess it's kind of like I was talking about today in class, actually, geologists celebrating, you know, Archbishop Usher's October 9 a.m. date for the creation of the Earth. I figured that was the closest thing that came to a geology holiday, you know? <laughs> yeah, all of our holidays are really dateless because they're so old. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. But, um, you know, keeping the tradition alive, even though we're reformed. So uh, what have you been up to this week? Oh, I've been battling software mostly. I, I ran some experiments, and I'm trying to process them. And unfortunately... As operating systems and visualization toolkits progress, our software that we use in my lab group has slowly ceased functioning. So I've been trying to <laughs> get it to limp along enough so that I can finish. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let somebody else do the heavy lifting of total rewrites, right? Well, yeah, uh, re-implementing the correct visualization backend would probably be, I don't know, somewhere between 60 and 100 hours. Uh, mm. of, of work. And it's one of those things that is not really something that any of the grad students are going to do. It's easier to hire a programmer to do it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so okay. yeah, it, it'll eventually get reformed. But for now, uh, we have to make it work. So that's been my fun. Uh, but you're used to dealing with antiquated software, if I remember. Because <laughs> uh, I run Windows. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> Well, no, the, the software you run on Windows. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I just wanted to get that in there before you did. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely true. <laughs> and that's because I'm a paleomagnetist, and we use software that was developed, I think, on Windows 3.1. And, um, yeah, it's it's rough. <laughs> yes, I remember taking a paleomag class with your PhD advisor, and trying to run this on a Mac in a virtual machine running like <laughs> Windows 98 in compatibility mode or some nonsense. And your machine walked out and it went down the street and got a beer because it was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, was it Super IAPD, I think, is what it was called? Right. 
And you yeah. know what? Like every paleomagnetist I meet, I ask what they use to look at these diagrams that we produce, which we're going to talk about today. Um, and that's what everyone uses. Everyone still uses it. It's really good, but it does not play well with 64-bit machines so or Macs at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those things where... It's sad but true. You do see a lot of labs that have stacks of old computers that just rotate in as hardware fails. They have old ones on reserve ready to rock uh, uh, to, to keep the machines running. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously you're alluding to one of the professors in our department who has a wall full of Apple IIEs to run his geochemical equipment. I, I was not, actually. But... <laughs> That that would be a good example. There are plenty of others, though. <laughs> I I mean, an Apple IIe. Come on, that's that's crazy. <laughs> that is pretty old. Uh, they actually upgraded that system, but he still keeps them just in case, which I totally understand <laughs> because we still have 32-bit, you know, Windows XP machines running around just in case we can't run our software. So I would say I have a really old Dell laptop that. I'll just uh, ship down your way. Sounds like just what you need for the lab. Exactly. Yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll set it on the we'll set it on the table, ready to analyze uh, paleomagnetic data. <laughs> well, we've talked about paleomagnetics a little bit in the past because we said that's what you do, and we talked about rock magnetism. But I thought we should actually explain a little bit more about what you do, and it gives me a chance to refresh on the course that I took, probably seven or eight years ago now it was a while ago um that is very true so obviously i'm excited to talk about this um and as you said you know we've done an earth's magnetic field show and that was super fun but where does that fall in terms of geoscience like what do geoscientists do with that because i feel like you know lots of physicists look at the magnetic field but so do geologists um and it's not just our current magnetic field but the ancient magnetic field hence paleomagnetism yeah, I mean, on the other show, we talked about using the current magnetic field to find things. Uh, you know, you could find seamounts or ore bodies. Uh, but the ancient magnetic field is a different story. Uh, it is. And this is where the geology comes in because, you know, I mean, the magnetic field is constantly changing. So what actually records the ancient magnetic field? And this is a quite complicated question. Um, it can be simplified which is what we're going to do today <laughs> because we don't have 20 hours to you know for this one subject um <laughs> but right. so paleomagnetism it's looking at the ancient uh, magnetic field and basically we use the position of the magnetic pole over time geologic time um and that's what we look at that magnetism gets stuck in rocks by a lot of different mechanisms. And so the range of paleomagnetists, you know, is the gamut from all kinds of rocks, volcanics, metamorphics, all the way through sedimentary rocks, and looking at these magnets that are inside them. Yeah, and paleomagnetism defines the uh, it is not an exact science <laughs> part of the hey, show. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> we use statistics and numbers. Like a drunk uses a lamppost. Um, <laughs> there's lots of numbers. That means it's real. Um, <laughs> well, the first thing that I figured we'd talk about, um, 
is something called the apparent polar wander path. And so you should look this up. We'll have links in the show to what this thing looks like. But I bring it up first because I know John loves figures a lot. And the apparent polar wander path is sort of one of those really cool figures that encapsulates a lot of information in one very complicated picture. Yeah, and it's one of the few cases where it's okay to have a figure that is mostly lying. (laughs) Because you can show the, that's why it's called apparent polar wonder path, Uh, you can show what the path would basically be on the current Earth, where the continents and everything currently sit. Uh, Because you only want to show one map, not have this huge book that you need to flip through, right? (laughs) Yes. So uh, that's exactly right. So, you know, a lot of stuff has changed over time, right? The Earth's magnetic field flips back and forth, and the continents have changed their position. And so relative to continental position, we use this one figure to look at where the magnetic pole of the Earth is. I know this already sounds super complicated, but so continents have (laughs) wandered through time. Just like John said, you could have a book showing where the continents were configured with relation to the magnetic pole, or you can turn it into an apparent path. So our figures that we use show the continents where they are today, and then this lovely little trace of where the magnetic pole was in relation to the continents through time. So basically each continent or continent group, however they have divided over time, has its own apparent polar wonder path. The one for North America is different than Europe, is different than Australia, is different than India, etc. Right, and I will put a link to an animation, if I can find it, that shows what this continental drift has looked like over geologic time, all the way back to Rodinia, I think, if I can find the animation I'm looking for. So you can see how everything's moving, the magnetic pole's moving, all the continents are moving, and we just have to simplify it to be able to grasp it. Exactly. Um, so we'll get into how we use that, uh, here in a minute when we talk about the actual, like, locking in of the magnetic field in an actual rock. Um, but I wanted to mention another thing, because this is something that comes up when you're talking about the magnetic field through time. And it's this thing that's even more complicated than what we just tried to explain, right? (laughs) And that's a thing called true polar wander. Do you know a lot about this? I don't. (laughs) So we're going to get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's okay. Yeah, we will get in trouble. Uh, I will say I have seen this explained in interpretive dance at an actual meeting. This is not a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, And it makes a lot of sense, actually, when when you use dance to explain it. But so true polar wander. Now, this is different than the Earth's magnetic field switching or you know how magnetic north wanders around over time. It's different than that. Um, This is actually a solid body rotation of all the continents, just how they are oriented right now, with respect to Earth's rotation axis. So, what does that mean? That's not precession. Precession is the thing where our actual rotation axis wanders. That's not it. This is the whole sort of crust of the earth shifting while the rotation axis stays the same in the same place. And the way I conceptualize this, I think from reading a little bit was that it has to do with the distribution of mass on the surface, right? Exactly. 
So if you were to get something really big, like a big volcano, that's going to be super massive. It's going to change the distribution of of mass, just like you said. So if this volcano is far away from the equator, you know, if you were spinning the top or something and you imagine, you know, adding mass somewhere on that little ball that's spinning, it's going to want to equalize, right? And so essentially the whole crust shifts. Now this isn't the same thing as plate tectonics, okay? It's not individual plates. It's the whole outer shell shifts to redistribute that weight. So yeah, a great example of this, uh, at least as far as I understand, is the South Polar Aiken Basin on the moon, which is believed to have at one point been near the equator, and then an impact happened, there was a huge mass deficit, and there was this solid body rotation, so that now this mass deficit is at one of the poles, and what was a pole is now roughly at the equator, so almost this 90 degree shift. Right, exactly. So the whole thing shifting with respect to the rotation axis that stays stationary. So that's how it's different than precession, and it's different than plate tectonics because it's not one plate. It's the whole mass. Uh, this is a really complicated problem, right? This is where the whole paleo magic comes in. I could say that during any point of this show, actually. <laughs> but so the point is, understanding Earth's magnetic field, which we talked about the magnetic field, is really hard. It's hard now. But trying to understand it through time, what do we have to look at? The rocks. So the rocks tell us these stories about where the magnetic field was over time. So we look at rocks on all different continents and try to understand this. But, you know, not only do we have to correct for where continents were, but we have to correct for this crazy true polar wander stuff as well. Um, so there's a lot of story that can be told when you look at the magnetization found in rocks. And it's just sort of peeling back all these different layers to get at what it really means. Yeah, and... I guess we should talk a little bit about how rocks, you know, remember, in air quotes, what the magnetic <laughs> field was when they formed or when they experienced some kind of event. Because as we'll see, there's a lot of ways that you can reset the magnetic memory. Right, exactly. Um, I think there's a lot of rock magnetics that we probably won't get into. That could be its own set of 10 shows as well. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to stick to the very, very basics, okay? And um, so that starts off, you've got to have a magnetic mineral, number one, right? So the easy-to-understand version of a magnetic mineral acquiring the Earth's magnetic field is to think about an igneous rock. And God knows I don't like to do that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy thing to think about. So you got a volcano. It's hanging out. Spews out some lava. Now, as it starts to cool, due to Bowen's reaction series, eventually you're going to make magnetite, likely, depending on, you know, what kind of lava you've got. Right. So you got some magnetite, which is just iron and oxygen. This mineral starts to grow, and as it does so... The electron spins within the mineral lattice take on the spin direction, the same direction they line up with the Earth's magnetic field. Okay? All right. Now, there are a lot of different variables, but let's just keep it simple. So this tiny, tiny magnetic mineral, grain of magnetite, less than one micron. They have to be really tiny. It cools down, forms this crystal. 
The magnetization within that mineral is now aligned with a magnetic field at the time that crystal formed. Okay. There's a lot of really complicated atomic spin interactions that we're going to skip. We'll put some links in the show notes, though, because it's actually quite interesting. Um, But let's just say our little magnetite has acquired, it's essentially a vector, right? A little vector that is aligned with the magnetic field at that time. Now, due to different electron energies and domains within the crystal structure, whatever, it's happy there. Its energy is super happy there, and it stays there. And so if the magnetic field shifts or anything like that, that little mineral keeps its old magnetization. And that magnetization is an exact record of when it formed. Yeah, and, you know, this is the remnant magnetization part. Uh, And it's something that as a geophysicist, when I'm using magnetics as a method to try to look at stuff in the field, I always say it's small and inconsequential enough that we throw (laughs) it out. (laughs) Which is the saddest assumption ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes, I mean, they are pretty small. Once you get away from the mineral, you know, it's really not going to affect it. Because like I said, the minerals have to be super small to keep that magnetization. Otherwise, they just realign with Earth's magnetic field. So big magnetic minerals are constantly, they have what we call a viscous magnetization. They're constantly aligned with the magnetic field at the time. Yeah. And then these tiny little magnetic minerals are aligned with the field, say, when they were formed or whenever that magnetic mineral formed. So this can happen not just in igneous rocks. You can form orthogenic minerals, and that just means, you know, they grow in place. So in, say, sedimentary rocks... Fluids can go through there. These could be like fluids along a fault or fluids, you know, basinal fluids. So really deep fluids in a really deep, uh, deeply buried rock and magnetic minerals can form. And so those minerals acquire the magnetic field also at the time they formed. So they tell you something about the history of the rock, which is what paleomagnetism does. So no matter what rock you're looking at, You're looking at these magnetic minerals that tell a story either about how old the rock is or the timing of an event that happened to the rock, depending on what kind of magnetic mineral you're looking at. Or some convolution of the two, which seems to be Uh, the case a lot of the time. (laughs) That's the bad part. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, But not any magnetic mineral will do because there are different types of magnetic minerals and you really want ferromagnetics, right? Right. So there are all kinds of different ways that you could magnetize a mineral, right? Um, So you can have ferromagnetic minerals, which are the ones that are going to be, you know, my wheelhouse, where they're going to lock in this this great magnetization and keep it. And then there's like fairy magnetic minerals and paramagnetic minerals (laughs) and super paramagnetic minerals. So all kinds of minerals that will take a magnetization, but won't necessarily keep it. There's this really sweet spot of electron energy that keeps that ancient magnetization, or what we call the remnant magnetization, like you just said. So it's a really specific set of conditions that will allow you to hold on to an old magnetization. Otherwise, you know, 
stuff could be magnetic when it's got a magnetic field, but once you take away the field, it's not magnetic anymore. It just has to do with how the electrons interact with each other within the crystal structure of whatever magnetic mineral you have. So it is a very specific situation that has to be present based on all kinds of things. It's not just size of the mineral. That's probably the easiest one to wrap your head around, but yeah, it's all kinds of other things too. <laughs> well, and we've gone in the field and collected samples because it isn't just something where you can take an instrument out into the field and hold it up to the rock and it goes beep 3.25 <laughs> million years. Uh, <laughs> So God, I wish. <laughs> yeah, you actually have to take samples of the rock and take them back to the lab. And taking the samples of the rock isn't as easy as taking a hammer and whacking a piece off. You have to take a chainsaw into the field. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is always fun, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're not confused enough about paleomagnetics, um, it, it really is a hard thing to understand but the easy thing to understand is that you cut these rocks with a chainsaw and it's super fun um (laughs) so the chainsaw has a coring bit on it about an inch in diameter or so and it's got a diamond tipped so it doesn't have the regular rotating chain obviously but you take this thing and you carry a bunch of water or get an undergrad which was me at the time to carry a bunch of water (laughs) up the side of these hills uh so you can drill these rocks And then before you actually extract the sample from the rock, after you've made the core, you have to orient it because, remember, we're concerned about the orientation of the magnetic field with respect to Earth. Uh, Exactly. And you get to use this really fascinating uh, orienter that tells you the direction and plunge angle, and then you get to do a bunch of fun coordinate rotations. Uh, exactly. Um, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> we have this argument, you know, in the field trying to make sure everything is right. And this is one of the big things um, about paleomagnetism. So you're looking at, you know, you're going to put this thing in a magnetometer and measure this magnetic vector that's in a one micron, you know, crystal of magnetite, right? So there's a lot of room for error. <laughs> And the field work is super important because that's when your errors can start compounding upon each other. Um, Because as you can imagine, you've got this chainsaw and, you know, the the coring bits are stainless steel. So you're not introducing a drilling magnetization into the rocks. And you drill out these cores. You take this orienter, which is aluminum, and you mark it with a copper wire. So you have to make sure, you know, all non-magnetic things, you know, you can't have your rock hammer right near you Mm -hmm. even you know watches stuff like that you can't have them near when you're orienting this core and so we mark these in the field and so your core has a declination and inclination which will then tell the magnetometer once we get back to the lab we'll say this core is oriented in this orientation with a declination and an inclination and now go from there right and it sounds not that bad, right? You get to go strolling in the field, and you take the chainsaw, <laughs> and you drill this thing, and then you stick this orienter on it and sit there and take your time. But that's almost never how it happens. It's always <laughs> awful terrain, or it's pouring rain, or there are landowners that have said, you have five minutes to do this, because then they have to leave and they want you off their land. There's always something, and it's always a semi-stressful experience. 
Uh, yeah, it really is actually. Um, you know, the you you go out with people, they show you places, and they say, okay, yeah, this is all forest service land, so it's fine. You can be out here, and then you wind up going out there, and you know, you're actually on someone else's property and you didn't realize it. And that's all, you know, most geologists deal with that. But the difference with us is that we have this chainsaw <laughs> and we're really loud. And, you know, some people actually are pretty angry about paleomagnetists in general because we leave these holes in the rock, you know. And um, it's something I struggle with thinking about, you know, because you really want to take a measurement out in the field. You want to collect that core in the field because – you want it to be as correct as it can, right? So we could mm -hmm. take a hunk of the rock off and take it back into the lab and drill it, but it's just not as um, it's just not as accurate. So that part can get a little crazy. Um, and like you said, the terrain is sometimes awful, and you have to carry a lot of water, especially if you have really hard rock, because yeah, you're drilling a rock with a chainsaw. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> the chainsaws are temperamental and don't want to start. Uh, the best paleomag field memory I think I have was uh, drilling, I think it was in Colorado, and there were some people, it was public land, but there were some people hunting, and the gentleman came up to us and said, deer don't like chainsaws. <laughs> Uh, yep, that one was pretty memorable. Yeah. <laughs> and he was right. They probably didn't like it. <laughs> it's like uh, when you're fishing and, you know, some kid comes by and starts throwing rocks in the water. It's basically the same thing. Exactly. So <laughs> you get these cores, then you bring them back to the lab. You cut them down to size, uh, which involves getting covered in water and rock goo again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and then you go into this fascinating special room with the <laughs> magnetometer. Right. Um, so it's every undergrad's fighting to work in our lab because <laughs> it's so cushy. Um, <laughs> so what are we measuring in these rocks? You know, we're measuring an... Well, hopefully you are. You actually have to go through all of this work before you can ever know if there's even a magnetization in your rock. So there's a lot of upfront work and some frustration and crying when it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, but you're trying to measure the ancient magnetic field. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to get rid of the current magnetic field because you don't want it messing up your measurements, right? And so um, we put our rocks into a cryogenic magnetometer. So it's cooled by liquid helium, which is at like four degrees Kelvin, yeah. which is crazy. <laughs> Um, super deadly. Um, so it is in what we call a shielded room. And, and what is that? <laughs> this is a room where you are free of the Earth's magnetic field, and you can't take anything in there like cell phones or anything like that. It's a wonderful RF blocking room, uh, and yes. your cell phones would also highly influence the measurements. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, what's super cool is that it's really easy to build, build one of these. Um, you just get two sheets of stainless steel and they're about 10 inches apart or so. And it's just a room inside a room and that blocks out Earth's magnetic field. Yes. And I've never fully understood how that works. <laughs> and I don't think anyone does. I've never heard it explained actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, the expensive way to do it is this cool stuff called mu metal. Yes. And that stuff's crazy. 
Now, a Mew Metal Shield is a little bit better than this room inside a room. Mm-hmm. But I think isn't the Mew Metal Shield what's actually around the magnetometer itself so that the computer and electronics don't interfere with it? Right. And we have a smaller Mew Metal Shield in the room um, that we keep the rocks in that we're working on so they're not affected. Because remember I said some, well, most rocks have what we call a viscous magnetization. So they're really easily affected. And like John said earlier, that viscous magnetization, say, that's aligning with any magnetic field at all, um, gets in the way of reading that ancient magnetization. So we've got a couple of different layers of mu metal um, to protect us, but it's super expensive. So that's why we don't actually make the whole room out of it. Um, But it's cool stuff because you can stick a compass inside these mu metal boxes that we have and it just doesn't work. And it's the weirdest thing on earth to see. Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't spin around like poltergeist style, but it does. It just drifts and you're like, oh, that's odd. <laughs> yeah. And so what you have to do actually, and this is a really, this is where things get very involved. So we're not going to go into it that much, but you measure the magnetic field, uh, the remnant magnetic field in the sample, and then you heat it, you cook it for a little bit, do it again, then heat it a little hotter, then do it again then heat it hotter, then do it again, and do this over and over and over. It takes days to complete a set of measurements. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, like I said, the magnetic vector inside there, every time you measure it with, you measure it with these crazy things called squids. There's all kinds of crazy electronics that go into this magnetometer. Um, And that's a whole other show is how a magnetometer works, (laughs) how a cryogenic magnetometer works. Um, (laughs) Yeah which is super physics-y. Um, so you're trying to outline this vector. But when you take a measurement, you know, you're only getting one declination inclination. You're only getting one XY coordinate of that vector, right? So in order to unlock the magnetization, you have to heat it up. So remember back to the volcano example. In order to get a magnetization, you cool a rock down. And so for the case of magnetite, it cools down, and as it's cooling down, because lava is like 800 Celsius to 1,200 degrees Celsius, okay? As it cools down through the special temperature for magnetite, it's called the Curie temperature. That's the temperature at which you begin to lock in a magnetization. So for magnetite, it's 580 degrees Celsius. And so as it cools down through that, it locks in the magnetization. So basically, you're just reversing the process. So you heat it up. You get this XY coordinate, you plot it. You heat it up some more incrementally, you plot that next XY increment. And as you go up through the Curie temperature, you've now um, unlocked the full, hopefully, (laughs) the full magnetic vector um, inside that rock. Um, There's a lot of complications with this, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, there can be multiple magnetic directions preserved. Uh, there can be multiple minerals that are doing different things as you're heating it. Right. Uh, or in the case of some samples I had several years ago, uh, they fell apart when we heated them. They decomposed. Yep. <laughs> and that was a problem. Darn those little micas. Because, um, <laughs> you know, uh, mica has a lot of water in it. And so we heat our rocks up to 700 degrees C. And as we do that, little micas expand and they pop and they just... You put in this lovely core, and when you take it out of the oven, it's just a pile of rubble. Exactly. 
it's the saddest thing ever. Um, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of work on looking at hematite in granite lately, and um, it happens a lot, a whole lot. We never have a, a run that makes it all the way through. It just comes out into this big heap of quartzes and feldspars and burnt up micas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you you do eventually, hopefully, get this data. And this is where Super IAPD comes in. <laughs> right. So you get this data. Um, and it's, it's actually great. Like, in terms of computing power, it, it requires nothing, right? Because these are little bitty .dat files, tiny, tiny files. Oh, yeah. Know, megs of files is all. Um, and so you get these tiny little data files and so you've got to plot them and what are you plotting well you're plotting the declination and inclination of the ancient magnetization and we're going to keep it simple we're going to say there's one right. <laughs> only one magnetization in there um of the rock so think about that in 3d <laughs> that's Ooh. a lot of info <laughs> yes that's where <laughs> Podcasts become a difficult medium. Uh. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, we're just going to gloss over this real quickly and put some links uh, in the show notes so you can look at these. But So we wind up plotting these things on what we call orthogonal projection diagrams, right? Because you have to see this declination in 360 degrees and then an inclination, which if you're thinking about the magnetic field of the earth, it's the same thing. It always has a declination and inclination, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, 90 to negative 90. So yeah. you have to plot both of those things together on a plot. And so that's what we call these orthogonal projection diagrams, which is what we use IAPD to look at. And nobody will ever call them orthogonal projection diagrams. You will always hear them referred to as Ziderfelds. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so... It is an awesome name, too. So Ziderveld, back in the 60s, um, was the guy who sort of worked together with a lot of other statisticians to put together this plot. And it's very confusing to talk about, um, which is why paleomagnetists seem to stick to their own sessions at, you know, AGU and GSA, because it would take the full 15 minutes to try to explain one of these plots. Exactly. So you have to just trust a paleomagnetist, which is a hard ah. thing to do. Uh. <laughs> as much as you can trust a, uh, a seismologist. Um, so yeah, um, <laughs> it's really confusing. So it's great if you have one magnetization, and now you have this vector. And what do you do with that? Here's where we tie it all the way back into the apparent polar wander path, right? And so that vector represents the magnetic field at the time that whatever was happening to the rock, whenever it acquired that magnetization, right? And you can turn that into, through the magic of statistics, um, a pole position. And you can you plot can... it on this polar wonder path and get the approximate age of the event. Exactly. That's the easiest way to talk about it. <laughs> that, that is the level that I understand it at. Uh, <laughs> Right. So we have all kinds of sort of, because this does sound like voodoo, and it kind of is, um, <laughs> we have all kinds of tests to make sure that we're doing it right all along the way. Okay. So this isn't just some random thing you throw together and you compare it to this graph and say, oh, look, this rock is 50 million years old. Right. You know, there's all this other stuff that goes into it. Um, there's, we have a, a whole checklist basically of how good 
is your data before you even drill a rock you can have a good idea about whether you know is this rock in place like it has to be in place or else your magnetic vector is going to be messed up when you go to sample the rock already right right so stuff like is it in place has something happened to it and i mean something like i took some samples in a granite quarry once and i was asking the guy well how do you quarry this granite you know it's not just knocking it off the wall and he goes and tells us that they take diesel fluid, light it on fire, <laughs> and basically expose the rock <laughs> to this lit diesel fluid. So it's like at 2,000 degrees or something. And it mechanically breaks the granite. Like the little grains just explode. And therefore you can make this sheet of granite. And they harvest that and polish it. I was like, oh, <laughs> So that's bad. <laughs> and you destroy the magnetic field <laughs> vector. Exactly. <laughs> because 2,000 degrees is pretty hot. And uh, um, so stuff like that can happen, right? It's not just the making sure your rock is in place, but there's all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but that's also in terms of structural stuff that could happen too, right? You can rotate rocks due to any number of structural processes, which is where Paleomag really shines in terms of a tool that people should use, I think. Yeah, trying to figure out when something folded or when a mountain belt was formed or when an impact event happened. Uh, exactly. That one is near and dear to my heart. Um, so you can be a rock magnetist and look at how all these magnetic minerals you know, how they grow, how they acquire stuff, the physics behind that, how they keep these magnetizations. And you can be a paleomagnetist that uses um, paleomagnetism as a tool, basically, to do answer all kinds of questions in geology. Um, so mountain building, that's a good one. Um, just simply, like, when did, say you've got a beautiful fold and some rocks. You know the age of the rocks really well. Say they're Jurassic-aged rocks. But you don't know when they got folded, you have no other clues. This is where paleomagnetism can come in handy because you can sample each limb of the fold. You can determine if the magnetization was acquired before or after the folding. And hopefully you can see exactly when. If you know it's before, you can unrotate it, compare it to um, the apparent polar wander path, and now you have an age of deformation, which is how it's commonly used um, and it answers a lot of questions in the absence of other methods to answer these questions. It's actually a pretty great tool um, for that kind of stuff, for tectonics. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the main thing that I've seen it used for, trying to figure out when something got injected, uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, I've used it as sort of a way to determine the age of things, like John was just talking about impact craters, um, in the absence of other like stratigraphic methods or we've also worked on impact craters where say um, other dating like geochemical dating methods have failed due to various reasons, the type of rock or um, things that have happened to the rock. And so you can use paleomagnetism to sort of constrain uh, the timing of deformation in stuff like impact craters, which is really interesting too. Yeah. So do you think we've confused everyone listening enough? Man, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> figures are not beautiful generally in Paleo Mag, but they say, you know, they tell the whole story. So you should um, look at some of these figures and sort of try to understand it. There's also from the University of Arizona, um, Dr. Bob Butler. He used to be a professor there. He has a free paleomagnetics book if you were ever interested at all in going <laughs> deeper into this and it's on their website um that's a really great reference as well as the hitchhiker's guide to magnetism <laughs> yes i i've read the butler book i haven't read hitchhiker's guide um and you pointed out also that there's a project called pmag pi that is trying to use python to replace things like super iapd uh, right, exactly. Um, and so most of us don't know how to do Python, so we just stick with Super IAPD. But I put this Python stuff in here because I know you love it. Um, <laughs> and this goes along with uh, Dr. Lisa Taux is a paleomagnetist out of Scripps. And she wrote a really great paleomag textbook not very long ago because, as you can imagine, there really aren't a ton of paleomagnetic textbooks out there. Um, and so this is a fairly new one, and she has a whole suite of software to look at PMAG data with. And um, it's all, you know, laid out in the book, and then we've got a link to the website as well. But I leave that to you to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know how many roughly PMAG labs are there in the U.S. right now? I, I don't know exactly. Um, I would say it's probably, I mean, active PMAG labs is probably 15 to 20. Yeah, so not all that common. No, no, not at all. There are a lot of schools. I know, like, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, like, I've been told, hey, we've got a magnetometer sitting in a closet. Right. <laughs> so it seems like once these paleomagnetists leave, um, there's this massively expensive equipment that no one knows how to run that just hangs hangs out for a while. So there's a lot of those, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that we should probably move on uh, one so we don't get too long and two because everybody's head is probably hurting by now <laughs> to <laughs> everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday yay <laughs> well if their head wasn't hurting before it's definitely going to after this <laughs> yeah so this is a fun paper that i picked and shannon told me that i was not allowed to pick fun papers for a while now <laughs> Um, yes, because the title is Acoustic Emission from Breaking a Bamboo Chopstick. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like a good rock mechanicist, I am going to say, and this models earthquakes. <laughs> um, I love this because just based on that and looking at the figures, it really seems like this is one of those things that's like, hey... What if we put that thing into our earthquake machine and let's see if we can write a paper about it? <laughs> but it's actually much cooler than that. <laughs> it is. Uh, the basic experimental setup is a vice. Uh, so you can turn a handle and the jaws come together uh, with a bamboo chopstick or a bundle of spaghetti uh, inside the vice. The vice is motorized in this case. So... As it begins to close, the chopstick or the spaghetti begins to bend and then starts fracturing and eventually breaking, and they record these sounds with a calibrated microphone, and mm -hmm. they have a force-sensitive resistor that lets them measure how much force is being exerted on the chopstick or the spaghetti uh, through time, 
and they actually see little stress drops and acoustic emissions that are the laboratory-scale equivalent of little earthquakes and seismic radiation. Um, I really like these papers that tie stuff back to, like, fundamental principles. And so that's sort of what I got out of this is that, you know, they broke this stuff and it looks like rocks breaking. And they know that because they can tie it directly back to some of these, you know, fundamental equations, and it follows it quite well, right? Yeah, and in figure two, they show some of the acoustic records with time, and they're showing here about 10 milliseconds. But if you stretch that out to, say, tens of seconds, it looks a lot like a seismogram. Uh, It looks exactly like one. (laughs) Um, I was like, what are they doing? And then you look at the seconds, and you're like, oh, oh, yeah, that is just a tiny little earthquake. Yeah. It's kind of (laughs) cool. But what they see is that these events, the breaking of the chopsticks or spaghetti, follow three of our fundamental, uh, again, they're called laws, but... (laughs) What a lie. (laughs) Relation, whatever, uh, of the Gutenberg and Richter law, the Amori law, and Bath's law. And are, are you familiar with these? Have you heard of these? Um, I'd heard of a few of them and then I just glazed over because they're seismic stuff. Right. (laughs) So the earthquake seismologists out there are screaming at their radios uh, (laughs) about what these are. So the Gutenberg-Richter law basically just says that the magnitude of the event and how many of them there are are related in a logarithmic way. Okay. So there are going to be, in in nature, generally we see about 10 times the number of magnitude 4s as magnitude 5s, 100 times magnitude 3s as magnitude 5s. So every magnitude unit that you go down, there's about 10 times more earthquakes generally. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the slope of the line that fits that is called the B value. Generally for real earthquakes, it's about 1. Okay. And, and for chopsticks. <laughs> and for chopsticks, it is about 1.4 plus or minus a little bit. So 1.45, 1.48. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yes. Uh, then you can go to something like Amori's Law. Now, Amori's Law basically says that the... As time passes after the main earthquake or the main shock, there are fewer and fewer aftershocks in some kind of pattern, generally reciprocal or logarithmic-looking thing. Right. So it just falls off as time goes by. Right. Uh, They also observe that. That one's pretty intuitive. Uh And then Bath's Law is one that not a lot of people hear about or think about. But in earthquake world, it means that we can expect the largest aftershock to be about 1.2 magnitude units smaller than the main shock. I was kind of surprised that there was a law for that, because I'd heard of, you know, the Richter stuff, but I hadn't heard of this. And uh, how often does that hold true? Uh, Surprisingly often, really. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess it's a law. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I mean, with the, uh, the recent Alaska earthquake, I know... At least just a few days ago, uh, there was a little bit of chat about the largest aftershock, uh, I think was a 4.7 so far, mm. and the main mm-hmm. shock was a 7.1. So that's uh, not even... <laughs> so there could be a larger one that may yeah. have changed by the time this airs, uh, or it may that's... have changed as we're recording, and I just haven't 
looked in the last couple days. Yep. Um, but so this this paper does a really nice job of connecting this back to seismology and saying, look, we can get these fundamental seismic relations out of something very simple that we can numerically model and examine very closely with less equipment than what we use in the lab uh, for generating <laughs> yeah. our stick slips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically advice. Um, yep. Also, what came out of this for me is it's astonishing that the cross-section of a bamboo chopstick looks just like the cross-section of a handful of spaghetti. Yeah, it was, what, about 400 uh, little passageways in a bamboo chopstick, mm -hmm. I think is what they said. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. could pretty much hear each one of those breaking. Yeah, that was super cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really, these fundamental papers, that's pretty fun. It just goes back to that whole, you know, you never know when inspiration is going to hit you, and clearly it hit these researchers um, at dinner time. <laughs> well, it's okay, Shannon. I have another one or two papers saved up in the fun paper bank that involve breaking spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, which is going to lead to spaghetti plots, and then we're going to talk about meteorology, and since it's winter, we'll talk about isos and mineral. There you go. <laughs> we brought it back again. I just had to get it in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your fun paper Friday. I really enjoyed that one quite a bit uh, because I knew it would give you fits. <laughs> exactly. At least it was short. That's what I have to say. <laughs> yeah. But if you have a fun paper that you would like us to talk about or anything that you would like to correct or discuss, uh, please do get a hold of us. Shannon, how can they do that? Uh, well, they can email us any comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, please stick with us. We'll do something cooler than paleomagnetism next time. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so if you just can't get your head around it, you can always tweet us about how awful um, magnets are at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin, and John is at geo underscore Lehman. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.